Listeners, we have got a very special guest with us today. My friend Joshua Whitehead is here, and we'll be talking about his brand new essay collection, Making Love with the Land. Joshua Whitehead is an Ojikri Nahiwu, a two-spirit Indigiqueer member of Peguis First Nations, Treaty One. He is the author of the novel Johnny Appleseed, Arsenal Pulp Press, which was longlisted for the Scotiabank Giller Prize and shortlisted for a Governor General's Literary Award in Fiction and the poetry collection Full Metal Indigiqueer through Talon Books, which was shortlisted for the inaugural Indigenous Voices Award for Most Significant Work of Poetry in English, and the Stephen G. Stephenson Award for Poetry. Currently, he's working on a PhD in Indigenous Literatures and Cultures at the University of Calgary's English Department, Treaty 7. In the last few years, following the publication of his debut novel, Johnny Appleseed, Joshua Whitehead has emerged as one of the most exciting and important new voices on Turtle Island. Now, in his first nonfiction work, Whitehead brilliantly explores indigeneity, queerness, and the relationships between body, language, and land through a variety of genres, essay, memoir, notes, confessions. Making Love at the Land is a startling, heart-wrenching look at what it means to live as a queer Indigenous person in the rupture between identities. In sharp, surprising, unique pieces, a number of which have already won awards, Whitehead illuminates this particular moment in which both Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples are navigating new and old ideas about the land. He asks, what is our relationship and responsibility towards it? And how has the land shaped our ideas, our histories, our very bodies? Here is an intellectually thrilling, emotionally captivating love song, a powerful revelation about the library of stories, land and body hold together, waiting to be unearthed and summoned into word. Hi, Josh. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, hello. You know, I love me some weird era, so I'm excited to be here. (laughs) Good. We're excited to have you. And as is kind of weird era tradition, uh, I'm just going to jump straight into it. Your work has been very critically and commercially successful in the last few years, um, especially with Johnny Appleseed. You and I have had the conversation before about how Johnny just kind of continuously gives back to you all these years later. Um, And for listeners unaware, Johnny Appleseed was first published in 2018, but his audience scope has grown very steadily since that point, especially uh, in 2020. In addition to Johnny, you are also the editor of Love After the End, which is a collection of speculative fiction stories written by Indigiqueer writers. So you have clearly had a lot of success in working within the realms of fiction. I want to talk about a bit in your essay, Writing is Rapture, where you momentarily struggle to categorize making love with the land. You write, (laughs) as for this new work of storying, the work of this book, do I call it biographical, autofiction, autobiographical? I lean towards the categorization if I must categorize it all within the landscapes of literary productions and academic pageantries of bio-story. Could you explain to our listeners what you mean by biostory and talk a bit about your concerns on genre-ing your own work? Yeah. Well, first off, not me coming for academia right in the first page. <laughs> Calling it a passion. We'll get into it later. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Okay. So, like with Full Metal, which is my book of poetry, 
people are like, I, brevity is now my forte. Um, so, like, short form, it is now for me. Bless the, those who can do it. Um, so, full metal, people are like, is this poetry? It kind of reads prosaic. And then I wrote Johnny, and people are like, this sounds poetic. And then I write essays, and then they're like, this kind of sounds like memoir. I'm like, okay, what is going on here? <laughs> so, I would say, like, there's a couple factors that came into play with this book. Um, mm. One, uh, as like Making Love with the Land talks quite openly about, is people continually confusing me with my own character, Johnny. <laughs> well, I'm like, I wish I gave you like a different different name. Maybe it's like a different letter, at least. Um, like Brad. Brad Appleseed. Uh, <laughs> no one's going to call me that. <laughs> and so, like, the confusion with Joshua and Johnny mm. was, like, I would say... A strong like progenitor towards a lot of this thinking, um, mm-hmm. and the fact that you know people specifically like non-indigenous white head cis folks love to read Johnny as like my unabashed memoir. Um, yes, you know, it clearly denotes a novel right on the front. <laughs> um, so how that happened, no one knows. So aside from you know a lot of white folks confusing me for Johnny, and also for some reason confusing me as Billy Ray Belcourt and him as me all the time. Um, <laughs> this was kind of a foray into being like differentiating it or making love with a line. is also kind of like the kind of looking behind the, the curtain to see Oz that is behind Johnny Appleseed. Mm-hmm. And so the genre part was kind of came out of, I would say a lot of my, I don't want to say reluctance. A lot of my kind of confusion about why people were confusing fiction for nonfiction with Johnny. Right. And then also kind of just like my own political ethics as well and thinking. I was like, well, if I'm going to be like decolonial on the land and not recognize border and boundary, I need to do it on the page too. (laughs) And for me, genre is so limiting and like cauterizing Mm. really um, in that specifically with Johnny too, like in its reception and, and when I was writing it, um, I won't name names, but people were like, you should get rid of like the dream sequences. It's taking away from the realism of this novel. So I was like also thinking about like how indigenous like writing, queer writing, uh, BIPOC writing is also always read as like pulp and genre um, mm. and that it can never reach the echelon of like literary fiction, whatever that means. Right. Right. By and for white men, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so I was just like, well, whatever, call it what you want. Like in the end, it's story. And so I kind of landed on this idea of, so like biotextual writing was kind of a, 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 like a large thought process about what I was doing. And that primarily kind of came out of the work of like Michael Ndache and, you know, a lot of Asian Canadian writers who were like also trying to bastardize genre and they're writing to the kind of nation state that is Canada. So it didn't feel right, obviously, to use their term, but it was a good progenitor, I guess, another kind of think piece for me to think about what I'm doing. And so, like, at the end of it all, really, I think it's just story, um, and I think that's what Indigenous writing is, and it's at the forefront right now what it's doing, um, because you can't categorize it, uh, you can't define it, and it's legible, I would say, to certain kind of lenses of analyses that is Canadian literature. And I mm. love that. I like being unknown or like undecipherable to the nation state because <laughs> then I guess means I have the freedom to define and play with my with my own ideas and terminologies and, and ideologies so I would say making love with the land was also not I didn't want it to be obtuse but I was like I want it to be fleeting and kind of immaterial in its definitions mm-hmm. maybe 
Okay, so um, jumping into you dragging academia on page one, um, <laughs> there is the immediate follow-up line to the to the quote that I, I asked in that first question. Um, in writing as rapture, you state the work of academia and writing for an indigenous and two-spirit person is that of continually ghosting oneself through barriers. You, I mean, very openly teach and write in University of Calgary's English department, and I'm curious about the relationship you have to academia in general. Um, I think a lot of people can come up with kind of numerous reasons as to why academia continues to fail um, marginalized peoples and, and continues to be a problematic space in a lot of senses. And if you would like to talk about that, I absolutely encourage you to. But first, to kind of spin some optimism out into the world, um, what are some of the positives that you found by remaining in this field? Yeah, I have a love-hate relationship with academia um, <laughs> in that, you know, it's obviously been very beneficial to me in terms of, like, helping to enhance and excel, like, my writing styles and techniques. Um, it does force me to read quite a bit, which I do like. Um, mm -hmm. And introduces me to a lot of community, too. Um, so, for example, like, I work with Larissa Lai and Vivek Shraya and Aretha Van Herc uh, right. alongside, as writers there. Um, but, yeah, it's introduced me to a lot of community, and specifically, I would say, with Larissa Lai. Um, she runs this thing called the Tea House, T-I-A House, which mm -hmm. is the Insurgent Architects. And I think what she does with academia is something I aspire to do as well. In that we can't, one, we don't forget that academia and the university is an industry. Two, that it actively benefits from <laughs> pipelines going through communities. Um, it is very much reliant upon, you know, the gas and oil sectors uh, as funding agents and bodies. Mm. And three, again, I think why I kind of call it a pageant um, is because it's just like, kind of, as a, as a grad student, as a PhD student, of having to like memorize the, the canon and write about the same authors that we've been reading since high school. Um, like, again, Spencer and Shakespeare and all yeah. those Hemingway and still teaching them. Um, so it was a pageant to me in that one, I was performing whiteness, I would say primarily for the sake of like going through these little hurdles, like getting your like reading list done and passing your candidacy right. exams. And so when I did it, I think I've always just, <laughs> I very much take from Buffy St. Marie's, like it's my way, like that's very much my motto. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I'll like do these candidacy exams and write about this canon. Um, but I'm going to write about it my way. So I remember doing like Dracula and the Fairy Queen, which appears in Full Metal and being like, just because there's no indigenous people set here on far from the frontier, it's very, there's very much semblances of indigeneity that I can use. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I would just kind of, let's say, pushed it back against itself and like mutated it into this like queer indigenous writing. Um, so yeah, I would say, <laughs> I don't forget that. Obviously I, I do teach there uh, at the University of Calgary in the Departments of English uh, and International Indigenous Studies. But mm. also I would say I'm very unconventional on how I, how I teach and what I teach. Um, so like, I try very hard uh, to not include white men in my readings. Uh, I try to make it primarily queer and trans and women focused uh, alongside BIPOC. Because some of these students have never come across books like Billy mm -hmm. Ray, or writers like Billy Ray Belcourt or Jay Simpson, or they never come across someone like um, 
older folks as well, like Gregory Schofield. So it's, that's exciting for me. And I think there's community work that it's made and built there. So I think that is also a pro to academia. Um, but always having to keep the mindset that academia is teaching you to write and read and speak white, really. Uh, if you can kind of maintain an ethics of care around that for yourself, I think there are radical things that you can do there. But again, you mm. can only do so much within the maw of the machine. <laughs> and so I like ponder, like I will stay an academic for the rest of my life. Um, right. But for now, for now it works. Um, and I'm happy to be there. It pays the bills while I write these books for y'all. Um, <laughs> so that's nice too. And it's great folks who are doing great work there. Um, but yeah, the relationship is a little fraught. Um, mm. But I, again, I have that same relationship with Canadian literature as I explore in that book too. <laughs> uh, in the essay, My Body is a Hinterland, you write, uh, we spoke like telepaths, both knowing the other's body could betray itself in a small gesture and inform on the other. Body like a code, knuckles wrapping taps. You're writing this in the context of a bar night in which you and uh, Nietzsche Moose, or your, your sweetheart, are seated next to a uh, rowdy table of men kind of mocking Caitlyn Jenner and transgender peoples, and you proceed to, quote, perform the pageant of passing. Um, a lot of this essay, and I own a body that wants to break, that essay actually drew me back to our friend Jason Purcell's poetry collection, Swollening, um, just in terms of kind of these explorations on the body as a form that could potentially and often does betray us. Uh, what draws you to exploring the self through that very physical experience of the body? Yeah, so I'm teaching creative writing this fall, and everyone's like, what are we going to learn? I was like, you're going like, to learn basically writing from the body and sensual writing. <laughs> I'm very attuned to that, <laughs> because I think focusing on the minutiae and the minutes uh, and the small and keeping it within the realm of the personal, although it seems limiting, is actually the more universal, really. Mm -hmm. And I think I learned that with Johnny Appleseed. Right. And I was like, oh, I'm writing this just kind of for two-spirit folks or queer folks. And now I have, like, grandmothers who, like, DM me being like, I love the grandmother in your book. And I was like, did you read the rimming scene, too? <laughs> <laughs> and so it kind of taught me, yeah, like, really kind of honing in on the personal and the minute really kind of opens it up to the larger larger stratosphere of mm -hmm. readership um, and other folks seeing themselves in it. It's always blows my mind that there's like book clubs of grandmothers who read Johnny Appleseed. Yeah. I wish I could sit in for that bear scene alone, but alas, <laughs> they, they, they seem to like it. But I think like as I explore and making love with the body or making love with the land is that I was like BIPOC and I think Jason does this wonderfully as well, and I think that's why it was a good pairing that I was their editor for Swollening, mm -hmm. is that we're always like umbilically tied to the story, and all of that's kind of wrapped up within the noun body, um, which is like large, and you can, when you rip body apart, those four letters in English, like there's like webbings in between it, um, and so it seems small, it seems irrelevant um, as a word, right? But within it, it houses, like, universes. Um, mm -hmm. So, like, when I think of body, obviously I think of my body. But then I also think of bodies of land and bodies of water and bodies of story or literature. And those are all in relationship. Mm. So when I'm writing why the body becomes kind of the central focus all the time is because bodies are story, too, really. Um, and I think, you know, pe we discover this as people 
who, you know, part like who have relationships or sexual encounters of like how a scar can be like an hour long story or wounds uh, contain knowledge or chicken pox scars also have a longevity of childhood right there. And like, so like thinking like a director and like really, really honing in on that small little scar. And I feel like each of my books has a body part that I'm kind of obsessed with. <laughs> like Johnny Appleseed was belly buttons and clavicles. Uh, and I think making love with the land is, I would say kind of like abdomens mm. and hands really. Um, mm. Who knows what the next body parts will be. Um, we'll find out. Yeah, we'll find out and I think the body is just like at the center of it all and I think to forget the body the body of the writer the body of the character or characters and the body of the story is to kind of delegitimize and make invisible the writer and the community that they come from so I always this is why I tell my students and I tell myself when I'm visiting a book um, you know, that is from someone from a different nationhood that's indigenous or by a black writer or an uh, Asian writer. I'm always coming to it as a guest uh, with cons- with a form of consent and a form of knowing that not everything's accessible to me, um, much as I would do with a lover or a partner uh, in the same semblance. So I try to treat books as kin or beings in the same sense because they are their own body. Um, so yeah, I feel like I could talk for hours about what body means to me, <laughs> <laughs> but the whole book's basically about that. <laughs> okay, so moving on, I uh, infamously called "Making Love with the Land" a dense read when I first got my hands on a copier earlier this year. <laughs> dense here also wasn't necessarily a bad word; one more meant to convey just the complexities of the ideas and the text itself. Um, once I finally really delved into "Making Love with the Land." The essays in there are so lyrical and textured, um, and I thought it was really fascinating to kind of read the poetics of Joshua Whitehead's voice in this nonfiction realm. Um, I can also only assume that the comparatives to Billy Ray Belcourt's A History of My Brief Body will come (laughs) from readers. Um, If we... Okay, like... As an exercise right now, if we kind of similarly categorize your works together, we have these two texts that are very mentally active reads by queer indigenous academics. Uh, these are not necessarily beach reads for the layman. Um, they're explorations of the body, of living with queerness and indigeneity and near extreme practices in writing. Um, you even say in the acknowledgments that this manuscript nearly kills you a handful of times. So... This question is a two-parter. Why did this manuscript <laughs> nearly kill you? And what do you hope to see from future texts in this similar vein of categorization? Oh, good questions. I think it's hilarious. Like I, I was like, people are going to say this is the sound, or this is like a, this is like a sibling to History of My Brief Body. Um, and then Billy has a and the novel coming out of minor chorus, and it was like, it's yeah. dissatisfaction with academia. I was like, damn it, Billy. Um, <laughs> I think we're on, we're on like the same wavelength. I remember one time we did a podcast too, we were in Seattle, and we were talking, and people like kind of confuse us sometimes or um, misread us as one and the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we're like, we gotta stop like doing things that are so similar. And then he was telling a story about having his gallbladder removed, and I was like, shut the front door. So here's my gallbladder scar. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, to circle back to the question, like making love with the land was, I started writing this in 2019. Um, mm-hmm. and this was after 
who this person features quite prominently in a couple of the essays, specifically Joshua Tree, but was after the end of a, like a really like a long term relationship mm-hmm. um, with a partner who is like a dear friend of mine now. But it was a, a rupturing and apocalyptic in that sense. Yeah. And then COVID happened, and everyone's right. mental health went down the drain. And, and as someone like I lived alone, thank God I had my dog, um, but I was just working from home and it was a like constant kind of day in, day out, the same exact thing. It was very Groundhog's Day yeah. uh, for so long. So Making Love with the Wind, I was writing during COVID um, and, you know, kind of coming to terms with the grief of this this death, really, of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Also allowing myself to kind of experience and feel and orate a lot of the topics that come up in Making Love with the Land. And a big one that was difficult to kind of excavate, which I think is the labor of nonfiction and the labor of memoir and autobiography is like excavation of memories is, a, is re-traumatizing, really. Yeah. And so Making Love with the Land opens with uh, a sexual assault that I survived and encountered. And I had not really allowed myself to... I guess, experience it emotionally. I just kind of repressed it. I'm a Capricorn. Um, that's what we do. <laughs> Push it away. So, like, I was, that was one of my first forays into really sitting with and feeling and opening the floodgates to trauma. And a lot of sexual assault was a big one in that semblance. Um, you know, deaths of relationships, but also deaths of family members was another big one talking about eating disorders publicly for myself was another big one that's something yeah. I've never done. Like, yeah. Um, besides to, you know, select few people and talking about you know, body dysmorphia and, and I basically kind of had to do it because I really couldn't, it was the container that was me was bursting really. Uh, fortunately it had to happen in a pandemic. <laughs> um, so everything was exacerbated and I felt like, when I was writing Making Love with the Land and you know, re-experiencing and, and excavating memory and trauma and pain and trying to transform it into something beautiful and joyful and lovely, uh, I was just like radiating all of these emotions that my small apartment couldn't contain. Um, and so it was like, it felt like an implosion really. Um, and there were some sentences where it felt like apocalyptic and there were some, there were certain times where like, and I think a lot of people did this in COVID and lockdown, where you're like kind of grappling with the real human fact of thinking about death and suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the experiences of making love with the land, some of them were nearly, I would say, dangerous to the point um, of like murder or death. And then also on the other side, kind of the experience of it all again, and the kind of mental collapse and implosion that was happening was also dangerous in that sense too mm-hmm. um of course exacerbated by containment um in a lockdown but i would say those were like the real cost and i don't think we as writers and we as readers really kind of talk about often the cost of the writer and the cost of the reader and the yeah. relationship at the cost that's in between um between writer and reader to produce something like this or to produce specifically nonfiction is a very vulnerable act it should be fun to see <laughs> when I'm on tour of what people are going to ask me, but I, mean, I think I'm quite adamant about what I have been asked within making love with the land. Um, but so like, yeah, that was like, that was kind of the very real cost on the body yeah. and kind of the spiritual body at the same time. Too. Yeah. 
In one of my last Weird Era interviews with the editor, Jackson Howard, we spoke about how texts coming from previously underrepresented writers are falling into more hands than ever before. Um, like, one of the specific examples we spoke about was how Tori Peters' uh, detransition baby was finding itself the center of many cis, straight women's book clubs. Um, this is literally what he wrote down for this question, by the way. I've also heard of many a white grandmother who read and loved Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> but making love with this land is i would say kind of in these same veins a text written to and for indigenous peoples especially those who find themselves at that cross-section of indigeneity and queerness um when i interviewed you for the first time uh for the launch of love after the end we spoke about language and the fact that indigenous language was very consciously kept in its original state in many of those stories Knowing you're not one to shy away from this practice, I knew I was going to have work to do as a white settler reading Making Love with the Land, particularly, like I mentioned earlier, with the essay A Geography of Queer Woundings, where you introduce Cree syllabics into the text with the line, English inflames trauma to its boiling point. Saturated and pressurized, I run from your properness, English. Harkening back to that original interview for a moment, can you just talk about the importance of sharing and preserving language uh, in your texts? Yeah, I think like as you read each of my books, <laughs> and like as an autodidactic learner of Cree, you can start to see the kind of the rhythm mm -hmm. and kind of the amassing of knowledge uh, or learning um, that I've done around it. And I like Cree specifically, or in, I think indigenous languages as well, mm. specifically for queer or to spirit or trans indigenous people is because at least I can speak for Cree, we just didn't have genders in our language. Right. Um, and, you know, we queerness, as folks like Leanne Simpson and Chelsea Vowell have explored in their books, was just like internalized and normalized within everyday being, um, at least for Cree I can speak for. Mm. And because it doesn't have properness, it there's no... It's all about animations, uh, so you're always in relation with something, but you're not, like English and French and Spanish, like it's always about an owning, uh, right. and the kind of the properness of language does that, um, and the use of grammatical structures, the use of capitalization, the use of names as proper nouns, always denotes some type of owning and some type of ownership and debt, really. Mm. Um, and I think we see that in how capitalism is failing us right now. English is a strong, strong proponent of that. And so like for me, it's important to include it because I think it makes space and demonstrates that queer indigeneity is and was always here and we have never been genocided to the point of extinction. Yeah, like the use of language one, it, it centers me and it allows me to speak backwards and forward ancestrally and futuristically, I really think. Mm -hmm. um, it allows me to have relationship with my body and with myself, but with all the, the land bases that I'm visiting and, and home to uh, here in Treaty 7, the Blackfoot Confederacy, and also back in Manitoba, in my home nation uh, and treaty. And two, it also just promotes and I hopefully shows and helps to revitalize language acquisition um, because we had words like two-spirit and indigiqueer, mm -hmm. and two-spirit was only coined in 1990. It's a very baby word, right. it's infant, um, and it's English. And there's a, like people are, I think a lot of a queer indigenous folks are like unearthing stories of and from themselves and about themselves, or making language and making space for themselves, or finding waypoints to use mm -hmm. that kind of 
opens back up the kind of the long road, I guess I would say, right. uh, of what queer indigeneity was, what it means, and what it will mean. So I think the language also helps me partake in that conversation, at least with myself. Um, and it's it's important for me to be there because English shows continually fails me. <laughs> it's too simple. The con- like kind of the the signifiers of the web of meaning uh, is just so relative and binaric. Yeah. Um, man equals this uh and body equals this and i was like well there's so much more if you kind of crack it open but people are i think the idea of english is is that it's always cemented even though it's an infant language as well mm-hmm. um and is yeah it's given too much properness so for me i like to run away from it and or i like to at least infect it uh, like very full metal style i still have that kind of creative mode of thinking about infection um, as refusal to um, of like showing English for what it is, which is a failing flailing language. (laughs) No, it's great. And it reads beautifully. Like that was one of the things when I was reading that essay in particular, you really do fall into the, into the cadence of the language and you actively make it accessible also, which is something that I thought was really interesting. Like I kind of said at the top of that question, like I knew I had a lot of work to do and there was some for sure. But again, you really, really laid it out in, in this accessible way that I think people are really going to respond to. I think it's super, super interesting. Oh, thank you. Yeah. We didn't know. I was like, do I want to include translations? And I was like, I am continually doing work of like defining and looking up what these English words mean. (laughs) And I think it's also, if you're going, if I'm inviting you into my space, I also expect some type of work to be done on that of the reader too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. So now I just kind of want to jump to a fun question. Um, Music is something that is extremely important to you. Um, Obviously that sounds like just this wild blanket statement, but um, your musical references are plentiful. They're meaningful in making love with the land and also very much outside of that text. Um, Like if any of our listeners follow Joshua on social media, you know this already, you're always posting your record player and what record you're listening to and what records (laughs) you just bought. Um, So yeah, the fun question here being, uh, what's something that's currently on your playlist kind of on repeat these days? And then I have a second question too. Yeah. I feel like I, I feel like maybe like book five is just going to be like a full on musical. <laughs> like there's more musical references in each book. And it's actually really fun. Cause like a lot of people like Johnny has a bunch of playlists of people like picking all the songs yeah. from it and making love with the land. Um, we purchased the rights to use the epigraph of Brandy Carlisle, who is like the goddess, the queer country singer mm-hmm. goddess to my life. Um, and I think it's for me is because silence hurts my ears. Uh, I find it's it's like it's actively bothers me. Um, so I have to sleep in white noise at all times. Mm. Like I literally, my poor fan has been like running for like five years <laughs> in my bedroom. <laughs> it's like please retire me. Um, and so like yeah, like, I have to listen to music when I'm writing too, um, mm. or else my thoughts just like are running wild, right. uh, and that kind of helps me contain them and focus them to kind of craft like laser pointed sentences. I think um, so. Full metal, the kind of the musical background to that was like very much Billie Eilish, Lana Del Rey, uh, who features in Full Metal. Johnny Appleseed was just like full on country girl. Yeah, and. 
Making Love with the Land was a mix, I would say, and all the musical references are there, but of, you know, Miss Brandy Carlisle, as I and, and thank in my acknowledgments too, of like always meeting my grief head on. Um, and a lot of classical music, really, I would say, hmm. to kind of ground myself in the warring ideals of unearthing a lot of these ideas. And who knows what the next one's going to be. I'm excited to see what musical background that one will have. But yeah, I'm obsessed with music. I can't, I can't have my house silent. It drives me up the wall. Um, so right now, I have been listening very steadfastly to the brand new album of Maggie Rogers, right. um, which just came out, as well as Renaissance by Beyonce, because of course. you want to vibe and feel good. <laughs> you got to listen to Renaissance. <laughs> but I never shy away from my country idols. I do love my Kitty Wells, my Reba. Uh, I do love my Loretta Lynn and Dolly. Um so those are always kind of my go-tos, too. So, like, my second question there was going to be, if Making Love with the Land had one specific theme song, what would it be? But I guess it would be that Brandy Carlisle. <laughs> it would either be Party One or I Belong To by Brandy Carlisle. There we go. Okay, so just like an interesting tidbit uh, that I found in Making Love with the Land is you kind of continually discuss your relationships to the characters you write. Um, You fully acknowledge that you speak of Johnny and Zoa, who's the narrator of the poetry collection Full Metal and Digiqueer, as if they are these very real people and not fictional characters that you've crafted. Um, You also write in your essay, Me, the Joshua Tree, I live through the intimacy I share with characters whose lives I have imagined, while you're talking about uh, Gordy Lachance from Stand By Me. From your experience as a writer, what parts of that practice of kind of inhabiting characters or intimately imagining their lives are freeing and what parts could be debilitating? Oh, this is a good question. I am a huge, huge, I have both of them tattooed on the back of my calves, Stand By Me fan. I have a Gordy Lachance was like, I was like, this is me as a kid. Um, and he's a kind of a queer little boy. Oh, yeah. So, cool. with that little iconic red shirt, am I weird? I was like, Stephen King just right above me. <laughs> um, and I think that kind of comes from. I think I've always done that of like imagine myself mm. in embodying myself with another. Um, and I think that kind of comes from a practice of not having a body or not being an identity that is seen as worthy of being embodied, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, of like always continually being ghosted as with, as indigenous peoples often are of thinking about, we're always relegated to the past which is only enhanced um, as a two-spirit person who's indigenous as well. Um, but that also kind of comes from being poor and, you know, being fat as a kid uh, and being femme um, of like really being dictated in and around the world and the experiences of the world is like not having a body that ha- is contained. Um, it's always kind of too much or leaking or it's, it's never fully bound. So I think for me, that was helpful, especially as a kid, but also as a writer, um, to be able to, like, okay, well, if I'm leaking, like, I kind of will just, like, act like a poltergeist, really, then, uh, and, like, move into the bodies of characters, because for me, that was freeing. For me, it was a way of being able to see myself as myself from the vantage point of another um, and three, it kind of allowed me to embody myself, which is as weird as it mm. sounds, by entering another. Mm. 
And so it's been a practice that I think was a coping mechanism and then a survival tactic. And now it's kind of become a creative practice for me to kind of, yeah, continue to haunt. Um, and I write, like, again, I'm a huge horror fan. Um, I even, like, I talk about The Conjuring 2 and Making Love with mm -hmm. the Land. And there's something, like, freeing and amazing and creatively energizing of allowing oneself to move like a mirage right. or allowing oneself to ghost, really. Um, and I quite enjoy it. And it wasn't until I was, like, probably like started writing Johnny and making love with the land where I kind of realized the pattern of my life of doing that. And I think a lot of that comes from being a, a gamer too, um, of like crafting yourself for yourself, but putting your, putting yourself, I guess, like emotionally uh, and spiritually into the container of another, another body. Right. And so I find it quite, quite energizing, but it also, it is debilitating <laughs> because you always kind of have to live like a symbiote, I suppose, like very much like Venom in Spider-Man or of always of having to continually be a ghost is also damning because it allows you to easily forget one's own self and one's own, the zipper of skin we call a body. And so it's important for me to kind of keep a middle ground between them. Um, but it's also a fun little tactic I tell them any time I do a workshop or teach students they were like, how do we craft a character with verisimilitude that I would believe in? And they all giggle at this. And I'm like, sleep with your characters. And I, again, I write about that in Making Love with yeah, the I'm like, what the hell is this person talking about? <laughs> because cause like, dreamers are characters allow, for you to allow yourself to know them intimately mm -hmm. and the smallest little details. So, yeah, I would say it's damning in the sense that it can allow you to forget yourself but it's freeing in a sense, in that same sense, I guess. Um, you just got to make sure that you're always in, you're always in a kind of very ethical and consensual relationship with that practice, that kind of creative practice mm. of being. And I think I just, there's a lot of essays that I've read, you know, by BIPOC folks, but primarily trans folks and like allowing themselves to be and craft themselves into virtual worlds. Mm. And like Half-Life was a big proponent of that. And I think that was also my practice, not that I'm a trans person, but it was my practice of crafting myself for myself, right. that I could kind of be this femme, indigenous, queer as hell um, person that I am now. And it, I guess I'm kind of like Frankensteining in that sense. <laughs> I've just kind of taken all these things and like made this kind of biopunk body, really. On a final note tonight, um, Making Love with the Land truly is one of the more um, vulnerable texts I've read in a while. I think probably the one that it reminded me of the most would be Pop Song by Larissa Pham. I don't know if you've read it, but you need to. Mm -hmm. It's all those essays on intimacy. Like, that is what I was reading this, and I was like, oh, these are companion pieces. You know what I mean? Um, you... Uh -huh. You really, really lay everything out. The reader is totally gifted with these brutal truths, personal in general. This is also your first text that's being published with Penguin Random House, major publisher and distributor. This is going worldwide. This book is going to find itself in many, many hands right off the bat. Um, and then kind of tying back to something that you said, um, I had one of my interviews was with David Demchuk and we were talking exactly about re-traumatizing yourself as a writer, um, a practice that he actively tries to avoid. 
a sentiment that I don't think you necessarily share yet, maybe. Um, and I know we're in the very early days of publication here. Um, at the time of this recording, the book is not even released yet. Um, but what has been the most rewarding part of sharing this vulnerability? Ooh. Yeah. I mean... Okay, this whole podcast, I'm just like making myself. I am a huge nerd for <laughs> video games, fantasy, um, and I think for me it was exorcism, really, mm. um, of like making material the immaterial. Like I know it's, I don't have my book here. Oh my God, I'm like the worst writer, um, but I have a book. <laughs> so like making putting it to spine and you know putting a body over thoughts and memories and pain and trauma, uh, like thinking about like a spine of a book spine gives it a kind of body uh, and makes it material for me. So it's something I can touch. It's tangible. Um, it's something that I can literally pick up and put down and put away. Right. Um, so for me, I would say it was exorcism. And two, I guess there was two things. Um, the last essay, um, like the, my editors and whatnot were like, you should, you're in the height of COVID. You should write a COVID essay. And I was like, oh, like, Every single person is going to be COVID films and COVID songs and COVID books. I'm like, I don't want to do them. Like, I don't want to, we're already still in it. It's not over as some people like to think, especially here in Alberta. Um, we don't need to be reminded of it. Right. Um, it's perpetrating our lives every single day. So I kind of wrote, I guess, my interpretation of COVID, um, which was the last essay, The Pain Eater. And I think the book... I'm, I'm such like I I am such an auntie in the making. Uh, I'm such like a mother, a, mom, a mama bear. Uh, I'm a caretaker. And like, have you ever seen or read the book like The Green Mile? Oh yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And so like I kind of really see myself in the character of like John Coffee, yeah. who you know like sucks out memory and pain yeah. and like regurgitates it. And so the pain eater like really taught me like to really think about the limitations that I have as someone who's a nurturer and a caretaker um, of like eating people's pain yeah. and like how that can really become sickly for a person who doesn't know how to expunge it. Um, and I think, cause I think a lot of us as queer folks um, and as BIPOC folks are very accustomed to doing that mm. and not realizing the repercussions that it can have on ourselves and our, our overall well-being. So I wanted to be really truthful about what that does. Like it's, it's needed. Uh, I think it's very necessary. It's a kind, a kindness and a grace that I think, a lot of queer and BIPOC folks extend to others freely, but it also, yeah, the, the, the writing of that really kind of made me think was like, oh, okay, I'm going out and specifically in the lockdown of COVID and like, you know, seeing people who are in the bubble and like letting them kind of spill and like not, not to say trauma dump, but to really let them, let me know like what they're feeling. And a lot of those were like secret conversations that I was trying to, explode with making love with the lands that we don't have to shy away from right. ideas of like suicidal ideation or depression or anxiety or panic attacks. So I think I was just taking this all this in and not really realizing the pattern in my life of like what happens when you go home and that's just you and you're kind of 
murders of crow like flocked to your minds of all of these stories and ideas and pain right and so like how to how to get rid of that and i think it taught me really to place boundaries around kind of the space and kind of the stomach one can have mm-hmm. for eating of another's pain right oh what a good answer what a good interview thank you so much josh this was all excellent um, I really, really encourage everybody to pick up this book. If you're a fan of essays in general, if you're a nonfiction reader, if you're a fiction reader, who knows? This book can't be categorized. <laughs> it has no genre. It is everything at once. It is really, really um, a fantastic piece, and you should be very proud. And I'm very excited to see um, what the reactions are going to be. Uh, and yeah, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's always fun. And yeah, like we were saying, this is the first interview that I've done for Making Love with the Land. And I, I just feel like really honored that I got to do with a friend um, to kind of see where it goes and what folks thought. So thank you. Of course. Okay, thank you, listeners. 